And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. Jack Benyon, your host here, and on this episode, we've gathered your questions on anything tech to do with IndyCar. So, it's fairly obvious how this episode is going to work. We're going to uh, go through all of your questions, try and give you as many answers as we can, and try and have a little bit of fun along the way. I'm sure we will. We've got JR Hildebrand here, as always, who can probably answer most of these questions on his own anyway. But as this is the Race IndyCar podcast, we had to make sure we had some sort of special guest expert to put us wrong in case we came out with any rubbish. So joining us this week is Charlie Ping, who was most recently Augustine Canapino's engineer over at Hunkos Hollinger but has basically done every single job you can imagine in the IndyCar paddock and any other paddock, including uh, Australian supercars. They've uh, done lots of sim roles, all sorts of aero stuff, um, and obviously the the kind of uh, standard race engineer role as well. So, Charlie, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, yeah, I guess um, are, you, are you kind of approaching this with a bit of caution or are you looking forward to it? Yeah, thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, it's always a little bit tough to be on record on anything like this, but... Uh... <laughs> So I'll try to be careful, and I'm sure if I get something wrong, the internet will let us know about it. So. <laughs> you can go back and listen to our previous episode where we talked with Charlie about the the kind of adaptation process of a rookie into ovals, which is um, obviously Augustin Canapino made his oval debut earlier uh, this year. So you can go back and listen to that episode and hear uh, all sorts about uh, Charlie gave us some really good insight into what it's like as an engineer to, to try and... Uh, I guess not necessarily just teach a, a rookie how to drive an oval, but also how to understand how it works with the the setup side of things. And also uh, talked a little bit about how much uh, testing had, had changed. That was one of the big topics we talked about was how little testing these guys get now on ovals. So that was an interesting topic. You can go back and listen to that now. JR, I'm going to fire straight at you first, because before we get into any listeners' questions, we've got the small matter of another hybrid delay, the the third or fourth delay depending on which delays you count and which, how, how you're kind of chalking it up I guess uh, at home um, the news is basically that we're expecting the hybrid now instead not to come in for St. Pete in 2024 the first race of the season it'll instead come sometime after the Indy 500 bit of confusion about when that might be we've we've heard after the Indy 500 and we've heard, heard in the second half of the season uh, that might sound like semantics but if you kind of take it literally as the second half of the season. That's four races after the Indy 500 at Mid-Ohio. So that's quite a significant kind of gap there. Um, we've talked about this a lot on the pod, so you can go back and listen to previous episodes. The The main problem being, I guess, the production of all the parts, uh, testing, making sure everyone's had an equal amount of testing, because uh, at the moment, Ganassi and Penske have done the lion's share of uh, the testing and also just the, I guess, the sheer number of things, um, it, as well as just the production of getting them ready. It's also the the fact that things can go wrong and reliability can can play a part. If you've not got enough parts to to start the year, then if things starts if things start going wrong, you're going to be in a, a hole pretty quick. So 
I guess, Jay, I guess kind of how I've summed this up from the paddock has been that people kind of support the decision to delay because it, I guess it would be quite embarrassing if we started the season and none of the cars could finish the race or if we had a load of kind of parts issues and, and stuff like that. But I, I also think there's a kind of underlying disappointment from the IndyCar fan base that we're facing, you know, another delay here. It's something that should have came in a few years ago now, potentially. And we're going to be looking at kind of 14 years of, the same engine and, and chassis now as, as we kind of, as, as this kind of cycle gets to an end. So uh, I guess, is that your, kind of your kind of feeling? You're kind of in, in line with what the paddock kind of feel about this. I know you've got some strong opinions about where IndyCar should go in the future, but just generally about the, this kind of hybrid news, you're, is that kind of how you're feeling? Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's a number of things to kind of break down about this. The first of which is, is basically, you know, that I think that this is, this was a necessary move to make given the, trajectory of the development cycle of the whole thing given the fact that they've they basically still have to finish developing this it's not yet at a finalized point you know they have not gotten it to a degree of reliability usability functionality within the car packaging all of that stuff to be to feel comfortable that they can go into a production kind of phase with it so that's the first domino that like that needs to get done and everybody needs to feel good about it. Everybody mainly being Chevy and Honda, they're the ones that ultimately are are kind of weeding through what still what still needs to be done here. Where do, how do they feel? I mean it's because ultimately it reflects on them more than it does on anybody else. It reflects on IndyCar maybe most, but secondary to that the manufacturers because I think sort of for better or for worse, it's become relatively transparent that this is a Chevy Honda project, basically, as far as the development of this particular piece goes. And so I think they are the ones that are that are sort of raising their hands saying, this just isn't ready. We don't care what anybody else thinks about it. We don't care what the timeline, if we're supposed to be on some particular timeline with it or whatever. They are also... I just kind of know this from some backdoor conversations. Like they're just as frustrated as anybody else is about this whole thing, um, and are are kind of frustrated. I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll get to that in a second. Um, I think there has been a concern from from months ago that this, even if you could introduce it prior to Indianapolis, that the this sort of use case at Indianapolis is still quite a bit different than the other places. And so I think there was a little bit of, or there was certainly some talk within the paddock of even if we get it prior to Indianapolis and it's implemented in the cars at some of the road and street course races at the beginning of the season, we may still not use it at Indy. Um, there's a whole, there's kind of that, there's also an elephant in the room with regards to using it at Indy, which is like, does it actually make that much sense to use it, Indy? Which is a broader question just in general here about this hybrid powertrain. Like there's no regen. Is the car gonna get is the car gonna be slower and get worse fuel economy because it's using this hybrid system on a giant super speedway? I think the answer to that, both of those questions, is most likely yes. That kind of that creates its own optics and narrative issue around all of this. Um, let alone, is it going to impact the, the quality of the show? We'll say in, in a positive or negative way, we don't really know. Um, 
so I think there was there was a, a a kind of mentality that maybe we would be pulling it off the cars, reverting back to the non-hybrid um, sort of setup for Indianapolis anyway. Given the rest of the the fact that this is just kind of not gotten sorted quite quickly enough um, to feel comfortable that it's going to be ready for the first race. I think at that point, then it's just like, well, why? Like, why, if we're not going to have it for the first race and we're not sure that it's the right move to roll it out at Indianapolis one way or the other, why would you roll it out for like a couple of the races at, in between? Um, I would say I, unless, like, unless Chevy was pushing heavily for it, which I don't think that they are, um, I doubt that we see this at Detroit either because that's just like bang, bang right after Indianapolis. So I think so. I guess that's just to sort of unravel a little bit of what the talking points here are in terms of it may be it may be that they actually have it ready prior to Indianapolis, but it may be for other reasons that it doesn't make sense to roll it out until you're a few races beyond Indianapolis, just because of how tight the schedule is for those next few events, one way or the other. Um, that also then is providing additional time for, to your point. The teams that are not Ganassi and Penske to for for IndyCar to make some you know concessions to add some test days in, let some other teams take days in between those events, um, adding a day prior to or after you know a Road America or something like that for teams to play with the hybrid units. Um, so it's, I mean, I guess the to actually then answer the the question that you asked which is like where am i kind of at about this relative to the fan opinion and, and everything else i unfortunately think that this is basically just like the worst case scenario for indycar right now which is they've and and, and i guess i at this point we kind of just have to call a spade a spade and and say what it is which is this has been a, a, amidst what is potentially the most challenging scenario for IndyCar in decades from a manufacturer perspective, figuring out what the manufacturer alignments are going to be going forward. You know, I, I think that at the moment, the longer they wait to do, to decide what the next thing is, the longer they wait to decide when a new car is coming, any of these things we can talk about there. I know there are some questions that we're going to end up answering that We'll kind of unpack a little bit of those things independently and 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 so we'll try to piece together like how they go together because uh, because to start with they're not the same thing new car new engine regs are not the same thing but they and there end up being there ends up being some interplay between them uh if we look forward you know 2026 at this point or you know 2027 which is when the new when another set of regs will have to come into play like indycar has to come up whether whether they decide that they're just going to roll over the same thing and hope for the best or change it or whatever that has to be implemented for the beginning of 2027 right now if you if we just work backwards from January 2027 you need to give manufacturers a minimum 18 months to like prepare for that um that's the middle of next year uh you know the middle of 2025 you know, they need to know what they're doing to prepare for actually implementing something on that timeline very soon. So, you know, some of these other, uh, you know, Ar Marshall wrote an article recently for Racer that was talking about Honda's 
sort of position and where they're at right now, you know, looking, looking ahead, basically saying like, look, this is not working for us. Um, I think it's fair to say that that's a common, a common opinion um, from engine manufacturers in the, in, in the IndyCar series right now. Um, This is just at this point, the fact that this is dragging on is distracting IndyCar, I think from working on what's coming down the road and frustrating the current manufacturers and it's not getting anybody anywhere closer to there being a different manufacturer or a third manufacturer in play and so i think for all of those reasons um we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place indycar is at this point like you probably i guess have to just make this work and get to the finish line with the hybrid situation because there's already been so much so many dollars and effort poured into getting getting there with it um i think as far as a product solution it's just going to end up turning out to be kind of a lame duck um as something that like really moves the needle for anybody i think that's partially why indycar fans are frustrated by it that it's like is this even really accomplishing anything it's kind of just pissing everybody off um so you know it needs to get sorted out the truth of it is it needs to get sorted out it needs to have a good reason to exist and be implemented in that way. Um, the, all of that needs to at least satisfy the manufacturers for where they're currently at through this cycle, because or else things are really like in bad shape. Um, and in parallel, like yesterday, IndyCar needed to start figuring out what's coming after this, because this is... This is just kind of not the right kind of momentum that you want to have going into that set of decisions. And I know from some of the conversations that I've had about what potentially what the manufacturers are thinking could come next, um, there's without question a lot of uncertainty in terms of what the thought process there is. I think that was calling a spade a spade, guys. I enjoyed that a lot. Charlie, uh, let me ask you about the implementation of the hybrid kind of mid-season because there's been a bit of... Uh, I don't know if disagreement is the right word. I don't think I've heard enough opinions on this, but I've heard Chip Ganassi yesterday say that he didn't think it was a big deal kind of implementing the hybrid kind of after the the 500. Um, but I know a lot of people, well, JR's just alluded to it there, like from a, just from a, like a, what's the point kind of perspective, but also just from a, like, how do you sort of, how do you have the regs for that? How do you ensure that the testing gets done in like the busiest period of the, the IndyCar season, all these kind of things. Um, just thinking about it with your kind of engineers head on, what would some of what would some of the challenges be, and, and what would your general opinion be about introducing that kind of halfway through a season? Kind of unprecedented. It sounds really difficult to me. Um, yeah. That reminds me of uh, V8 Supercars had the Gen Three car that they wanted to introduce in 2023, and it got delayed. And at first, they said, "Oh, we're going to do it mid-season." I think it just sounds better. We're still going to do it in 2023. It's just going to be later. Or, or sorry, in uh, 2022 it was. So it was introduced this year. And, you know, in the end, it just gets logistically so difficult. And it's such a strange thing to change the hardware in a spec championship halfway through the season. Uh, that I think there's just going to gradually get more, mo- more momentum against it because it's just, well, why are we going to do this for four races? Like, is it really exciting to debut this great new technology like at Mid-Ohio or something like that, you know, rather than having a whole off-season to talk about it and promote it and all that. So I don't expect it's going to happen this year 
if, if it doesn't start the season just for all those reasons, but, but if it is in mid season, I mean, chip has a lot of resources available and, and some teams do, but a lot of teams don't. And, and, you know, if you have a bunch of chassis that you can be building up for the first hybrid race all by themselves, it's not that big a deal. If you have to turn cars around and completely reconfigure the drive lines with, you know, one weekend off, it's a really big deal. And the other thing that's challenging is there's, um, you know, like JR said, there needs to be more testing with all the teams before it's really fair to, to introduce it. And how are they going to do that? The small teams don't have extra cars and extra people to do that type of thing. So if you try to introduce it mid-season, you're going to have, you know, a huge gap in, in knowledge about these systems and a huge gap in mileage on the systems. And it's like, okay, it's doable, but what's the goal? If the goal is just to say you did it in 2024, then you've accomplished that goal. But if you really want to make this a big deal and market it and, and get people excited about it, you can't just pop it in the cars and after, you know, have one week leading up to it to talk about it. It's not really what it should be about. And, you know, so that's, for me, it sounds like a nightmare if you're working on a small team and you've got to try to understand, not only get the cars functional, but understand how to make them perform when you really have very little time available during the season and people to do that. It does not sound like a good idea, but I think for right now it's just easier to say, uh, we're still doing this this year, just not right now. It just sounds better, but re- you know, I think they should rip the Band-Aid off and just say, it's it's not going to happen. It's probably a better option. I think if you have a championship that's close and then you introduce this and it causes a totally different type of behavior, competitiveness among teams, I mean, what does that mean? It's just kind of a strange dynamic, I think. Um, if they do, it'll be interesting to watch, but it doesn't sound like a great uh, great idea to me. It's a grueling part of the season, that second half of the season as well. And obviously a champion has to get decided in that as well. And you can't have the you can't have the uncertainty of whether the cars are going to get to the end of the race at that stage when you're trying to uh build momentum and and I guess show the the racing world who your champion's gonna be. I think there's been a bit of animosity towards um Penske and Ganassi for the fact that they've done all the testing. But I think you've kind of unpicked that really well there, Charlie, by kind of saying they're the only teams that could probably can do that kind of thing because they've got the people and the the resources to do it so as much as people might want to complain that it's unfair that the kind of best teams get all the testing it's like they're the only ones who can kind of do it so it's, it's a bit it's not yeah. really their fault when we introduced the air pits we had the luxury of having both penske and ganassi running chevrolets and those were the two test teams and and it wasn't because um you know we're trying to be favorable towards those teams but they were just the ones that said yep we can do that like it's not a problem for us and the other teams really didn't have the capability to do it. Yeah. So it's just kind of how it is. I think it's fair enough, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. It's just, you have to, you have to write that at some point uh, as well, don't you? And it's a, it's a difficult scenario for anyone to be in. I want to dig into some questions now because we've got some lovely listeners who've sent in some fantastic questions. And I want to start with Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, who emailed us. So uh, Ryan says, love the show, guys. So initially, thank you for that, Ryan. I'm going to direct this one to to JR because I think this is right in your wheelhouse, JR. Um, Ryan says, my question is more future tech with most of the OEMs investing heavily in EVs over hybrids long term. Do we see IndyCar switching back to more loud or entertaining kind of engine package for the future? Um, If the marketing dollars aren't there... um, uh, he assumes IndyCar are going to shoot for more appeal with some high revving V8s. Um, when you look at IMSA and WEC, the the sheer love the caddies get 
for being so raucous must make the other manufacturers look on with envy, he says. Um, my future IndyCar, uh, small V8s with flywheel hybrids running carbon neutral synthetic fuels, revving to 14,000 RPM and 900 horsepower with a hybrid. Uh, what do you make of that, JR? And how can what can you unpick out of that and maybe give us a little taste about um, what you would do in this scenario as well, given we're in fantasy. Say only here. 900 horsepower. Come on. Yeah. Let's think bigger here. But initially um, made JR angry by only requesting 900 horsepower. Sorry about that, um, Ryan. <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm definitely, it's a great question. Uh, you know, this is, this is, this was something that I feel like was a conversation among a small group of people five, eight years ago that has now become, um, you know, a, a public conversation, which I'm, I'm definitely glad about because I think it's just <laughs> something that we need to have more communication around and we need to be talking about what is actually the role that motorsports plays in the evolution of technology and um and what does that look like in kind of the modern scope of what the consumer cares about and and kind of by uh you know um in in a connected way what the OEMs then care about so i guess i would say i think that i think a lot of the frustration frankly with this current hybrid situation is that we're already running running we are now running on a renewable synthetic fuel so doesn't that kind of check the box basically for us yes, in essence, general. you know, being, um, you know, environmentally conscious about the powertrains? I, th I personally, I think the answer to that is yes. Are synthetic fuels, you know, as are they the, the widespread solution for uh, internal combustion engine powered cars at the moment across the globe? No, but in, but neither are hybrid powertrains nor EVs and, you know, all this other stuff. Like we we're sort of, I think we have um, in, in Westernized society, we've chosen to have just a much more black and white view of what's good for the environment and what's not. And we look at that almost strictly based on what are your emissions while in use um, there is not like a, a real, I think in the public domain, there's not a particularly clear thought process around like what I would call cradle to grave soup to nuts, like emissions. What does it cost to produce something A vehicle batteries, whatever, what does it cost to actually use it over its lifespan? What does it cost to get rid of it, recycle it, you know, whatever, um, electric vehicles are still on the, are still on the better side of that, like a, you know, for a regular size car, a Tesla Model 3 size vehicle or something, EVs are better better net carbon emissions um, than an internal combustion engine vehicle is, assuming you drive it more than like 70,000 miles. As the grid gets better and the usage, uh, the energy production for usage gets cleaner, that kind of ratio starts to improve in the direction of EVs. But there's a lot of things that are still not great about producing batteries, using batteries, all of these kinds of things. When you really look at that from a motorsports performance capacity, energy density has a lot to do with how much energy consumption there is to just produce um, fuel and energy. That is not in, in favor of battery powered vehicles and all this kind of stuff. So there's just like actually a lot to unpack here that I frankly don't think in motorsport just across the board, we're doing a particularly good job of um, outlining like what are we actually in our particular segment trying to achieve here? Like, are we just trying to achieve as a sporting organization like net zero? 
like net zero carbon emissions. We're going to buy a bunch of carbon offsets. We're going to start, you know, we're going to run everything on solar. We're going to like do all the things basically that IndyCar essentially is doing, right? Like they've got renewable diesel for all the trucks as they travel all over the country. Um, you know, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway has been a, a, you know, actually a beacon of sustainability for a long time. They've been very proactive about solar farm and, you know, all of this other stuff that they're doing. Um, that's, that's one thing is the, does the product ex- itself have to reflect consumer technologies that are, uh, that we view that the consumer views to be carbon neutral or, or better for the environment or whatever going forward. And then, and then you have to break that down into two separate categories of like, does that technology actually function to do that in the, in this motorsport? performance arena or not so there are some like battery you know electric evs or whatever and this hybrid thing is a good example of that kind of all right for a consumer vehicle that is not at full throttle at terminal velocity for at 200 plus miles per hour for 500 miles um you know a a hybridized an electrified powertrain particularly if they've got small batteries is probably you know, better has a smaller carbon footprint than an internal combustion engine vehicle does at 200 plus miles per at an average, basically of 200 miles an hour for 500 miles at Indianapolis for three and a half hours. That's just simply not the case um, because energy density starts to play a much greater role. And now we're using a synthetic fuel. So there's a bunch of these things that, you know, I'm not even sure we're clear on we're we're sort of motorsport generally. If you take away Formula E and, and Extreme E, which is going in the hydrogen direction, I think motorsport more broadly is just reacting to things that are going on in the consumer space because it seems like OEMs are kind of demanding this, you know, shift towards you know whatever towards electrification. We'll say just generally, uh, whether that be as a hybrid thing or or full EV. Um, IndyCar, because of the performance level that it operates at and the diversity of tracks that it runs, is caught in kind of an unfortunate middle ground here in terms of, does this really make sense? Is this actually adding value? Um, I think they might have gotten away with it better had they also been in a place from an economic standpoint to implement the 2.4 liter motors, because then you would have, at least just in terms of how the whole thing would have come across, you would have kind of done some accounting for performance differences by adding more weight and a hybrid unit that is going to be spec across the entries that isn't like an extra 150 horsepower or something um, like a Formula One, you know, MGUK has ended up turning into basically. Um, you know, I mean, you'll recall when hybrids got introduced in Formula One that the hybrid power cars initially were not faster, that they had to adjust all the rules to sort of handicap the cars that were not using the hybrid powertrains to, you know, sort of incentivize all of the engine manufacturers to build hybrids you know so so that's I, like formula one cars would straight would absolutely if you just allowed the engine regs to open up a little bit they would still be faster with just a nice internal combustion engine as their primary power plant if you gave them like a little more displacement and got rid of all the weight and all the complexity of the batteries and all the rest of it it's just the reality for performance vehicles right now. Like whether we are kind of willing or like to me, motorsport should be a truth teller about these things, not 
just going with the flow because we're stuck in it, basically. Um, that being said, there is a way for IndyCar to incentivize innovation and development in electric vehicles, in electrification more generally. Um, it, it, but it has to develop a way for its its product to become more flexible in terms of like what manufacturers are allowed to do. And maybe even considering there being different like parallel flows of, all right, we're going to, we're going to, like I've, I've, I've suggested this for like six or seven years now, Indianapolis should just, they should take out an insurance policy on the first vehicle to win the Indianapolis 500 with an, with a completely electric powertrain and make it for a hundred million dollars for the first time that that happens and have a completely separate flow of anybody, any time of year can show up at Indy and come try to reach some performance benchmarks that we've outlet outlined with a, a, a strict EV. So what we would kind of think of as being like the end game here, you know, that we're trying to get to from electrification, not a hybrid thing, not, not anything in between. Um, and just, Again, like draw a line in the sand, basically, and say, look, if everybody wants EVs to be developed, we'll say you can come and race here, but you have to be able to do these 10 things before we'll even consider allowing this vehicle to be a part with this powertrain to be a part of the championship product. Um, and we're going to do it at Indianapolis, which while I think the, the, the thought process from within folks that are tied up around IndyCar would say that's enormously risky that this whole thing changes at Indianapolis and blah, blah, blah. I would sit there and say, look, like that this is a the reason that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was originally constructed and built. So this is in our DNA. This is part of our historical arc is being a place where innovation is tested against the status quo. Um, and B, it is the hardest fucking thing I can possibly imagine for an electric you know, a battery power vehicle to do. So, I mean, my point of view at that point is like, there's there's a couple of potential outcomes here. One is you invite a lot of intrigue and it ends up being basically impossible. And then you can just sit there like with your cap on sideways and say, hey, look, we did everything we had to to allow this to exist here, but we were not willing to um, sidestep our, you know, principles of performance that an electric vehicle just can't do the things that an IndyCar needs to be able to do to compete in Indianapolis on a level playing field. So tough. That would be informative to me as a consumer about like what all of this stuff actually means. Um, the alternative, the, the other on the other end of the spectrum, somebody figures out how to do it, whether that be some group of kids in their garage at Stanford or, you know, Chevrolet. And or whoever, or it's you know, you, you're potentially if you open that door, you're inviting interest and intrigue from any manufacturer potentially in a completely different way than we're currently like allowing for that to happen. Um, maybe somebody does develop a technology where a battery operated vehicle can can run an average with pit stops and whatever else can run an average of 190 miles an hour over 500 miles. And you know what? Like, if somebody does that, we better well be responsible for that innovation coming to fray because that shit is going to be game changing. Like, that's, I guess, that's just kind of my point of view. Like, we should be open to real innovation happening 
Um, but if not for that, then like, why do any of this stuff? Kind of. So I think at the moment, we're even seeing that with this hybrid thing right now. Like Honda clearly was the one that was pushing for this hybrid as opposed to maybe going with the 2.4 liter when that became kind of a question. It seemed like Chevy was a little bit more like, we'll just do whatever. And the 2.4 liter thing seems like more fun. So forget it. Like, we'll just go do that. Um, Honda pushed for hybrid because they felt like they needed a more significant technology change, you know, to for them to remain interested. And as as some stuff that's now sort of become public, you know, has come out and said, like, they might bail anyway. So I think that to me is kind of an indication that there needs to be like a light at the end of the tunnel. There needs to be like a clear reason for IndyCar and for its product and for what IndyCar is that we're doing these things, whatever these things end up being. Um, and I think if you distill all that down, the idea of going going towards something because we're using synthetic fuels to say, yeah, screw it. We're just going to like build a great motor. I mean, it's it's not out of the question at this point that IndyCar is going to be going to in 2027 be in some way, shape or form, in essence, a spec or spec ish engine, whether that's a single supplier or there's some way for manufacturers to kind of like play a role in that. I think the biggest the the biggest thing that like worries me about that is not necessarily I mean, there's there's lots of worries to be had if that ends up being the case just because of the economics of how significant the manufacturer play manufacturers play into like the overall business structure of IndyCar. But one of the things that I personally feel like will get overlooked if that ends up being the case is it being an opportunity to at least define a powertrain that's super interesting if it's going to be a spec thing. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of like little pieces of this question that I think allude to bigger questions, basically for IndyCar going forward in terms of, you know, the biggest one for me is I, I just think there's no way for IndyCar to, to, um, attract more manufacturers unless they manage to allow manufacturers do more of what they individually want to do in the way that you've seen IMSA, WEC, you know, those are the obvious you know, wants to point to and say, look, like we all agree BOP sucks. The manufacturers think BOP sucks, but because they're allowed to go just build whatever powertrain they want within a much larger box um, that is in essence regulated based on dynamic performance as opposed to any particular size and shape of anything in particular. Um, I mean, that's something for us to unpack another day, but I've talked to a few of the manufacturers recently about this and you know, there's, that's the other side of this, I guess, basically is should there's, there's kind of like, what should IndyCar do for the sake of just making the IndyCar product more interesting to fans? That's one thing that, that you could look at in the context of the same number of manufacturers, no manufacturers, more manufacturers, whatever. There's another part of it, which is it's healthier for this championship to have more manufacturers. How do you either together or separately solve for that? And that makes this all together with the hybrid situation, like the hybrid thing that we're doing right now factors into that one way or another. You got to decide like what we're doing with that going forward. Was this something that we like or don't? Um, you know, so, so there's a, I guess just to the earlier conversation that we were having, like there are a lot of things that still need to get figured out here um, to decide what's 
how IndyCar is successful in these areas going forward, ultimately. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I've got one for, for you, Charlie, or at least I want you to, to start with this one. Um, we've had a question from Andrew Fink via email, so thank you for that, Andrew. Uh, he asks, uh, Honda and Chevy are often thanked in the winner's circle for how much of a factor are current IndyCar engines? How fierce is the development race between HPD and Chevy? How often are engine developments brought to the track? Um, I, I guess initially it's quite straightforward in the sense that Honda and Chevy are two of the fiercest rivals in in motorsport probably I think I don't think anyone who works for either or is in the IndyCar paddock would would disagree with that um maybe you can dig down a little bit into uh, how often engine developments are brought and stuff like that because you've kind of worked either directly or indirectly for both of the current IndyCar uh, engine manufacturers haven't you so um yeah in terms of en- engine developments brought to the track how different is it race to race and um uh, from just from your personal experience how fierce has that rivalry been in, in this kind of period that we're in now yeah, it's a it's a really big rivalry, and there's a lot like there's a lot of really hard work done by both those organizations on the engine side for sure. Um, you know, I started out working for HPD as an engine support engineer in 2005 when there was still competition between Chevy and um, Toyota and Honda, and um, you know that was mostly an oval series still at that time, and the engine is a really big factor on ovals. Like it is absolutely massive, just a few horsepower. It separates you from the pack there. So it's just, it's incredible that the engines have been so close over the last 10 years. Like it's unbelievable that they've managed to keep this fight so close because there's no balance of performance on these engines, the same rules for everyone. And they're both just working absolutely as, as fast as they can. And they, you know, and yet, you really don't feel very often like the manufacturer is the reason why someone's going to win a race. You feel like both, you know, even if you think, okay, Honda's a bit better, Chevy's a bit better at certain tracks, you still think anybody could win, which is really amazing. Um, the It's not as big a factor on the road courses in terms of power, but uh, especially now that there's not traction control, which there hasn't been since 2005, um, there's a lot of drivability things that the uh, manufacturers can do and help with. They can help teams um, by bringing data together and, and, you know, helping with some data sharing amongst their their shared teams. But to give you an example, I, I, I started in 05 and Honda just dominated that whole season and basically ran the other two manufacturers out of the series. But And the year before it was even worse at Indy in 2004, Honda swept the top 12 in qualifying and the top seven in the race. And that's when Ganassi and Penske 
neither one of those were Honda teams. So the engine is just absolutely huge and they work really hard to prevent that kind of domination or try to become the person creating that kind of domination. Because if someone showed up next year at Indy and dominated like that, nothing would happen. Unlike a lot of other series, like sports car series, like, and, and well, something might happen, but there'd be a lot of complaints and, and out, outcry <laughs> from the teams that they couldn't be competitive, which is what happened in the Aero Kit era too. But, um, but yeah, the, the suppliers work really hard. I think because they're so close and because it feels like kind of a toss up between uh, both manufacturers, most of the time they probably don't get as much credit as they deserve for how hard they work. Cause it just feels like, Oh, it's kind of a spec engine series. Well, it's not, it's the same formula for both of them, but it's really um, they're constantly improving and developing and they, and they work really hard to do that. Um, as far as updates go, they're not huge. Now this engine has been around for 10 years, but typically there's updates and, over the off season and then another update before Indianapolis. And I think most of the, most of the manufacturers really target those two areas. They want to work on the off season to, to, because everyone's going to start St. Pete with a new engine. Um, and so they want that spec to be as good as possible. And if they can't get any updates in that, then they'll try to introduce that for Indianapolis where obviously the most important race oval it, horsepower is really key. So after Indy, there's not usually a whole lot of updates. Um, but they could happen at any time. I think they usually, timeline-wise, they focus on those two. The big one that stays fresh in my mind, mainly because it's recently, but the the drivability upgrade Chevrolet brought in 2022 is a, a kind of obvious one of how impactful one of those kind of what seems like an apparently small kind of update from the outside can really shake up the order and change the the course of how the season goes, um, whether it's on ovals or, or road courses. Obviously, the... The drivability element much more important on a on a road course or a street course, but that, that 2022 season is a good one to look back on if you're interested in that whole kind of thing. I want to move us away from engines a little bit now, guys, and move on to some other areas. Uh, my favorite area in IndyCar at the moment, or or just generally with the dampers. So uh, Daniel on Twitter at D Montero, I think I've pronounced that correctly, but how do you even pronounce a handle anyway? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, he asks, are tuned mass dampers a thing in IndyCar? So Charlie, I guess, let me uh, add a bit of this, uh, a bit of meat to this question in the sense that, can you kind of run through and explain to, let, let's say me, the two-year-old of the group, um, what a damper does? Because I guess the fascinating part for me is that it's just, people just talk about dampers like it's a throwaway thing like we know it's a development part we know it's something that is very important to how IndyCars perform but I think the thing I didn't really understand until I fully started covering IndyCar properly and kind of getting into the paddock and speaking to people about how these things work is just how kind of critical dampers can be in terms of your whole kind of setup philosophy and whether that's just your not just your Kind of mechanical grip and stuff like that but it also impacts your aero balance and basically how your whole car performs you can't just go from one team with one set of dampers and try and implement what you were doing with those dampers at the next team because their whole kind of philosophy will be different and it won't necessarily just kind of translate over so maybe you can give a little bit of in insight into what the dampers are doing in indycar and kind of what that kind of battles like between the teams at the moment yeah so um the i guess it one important thing to consider is the IndyCar has opened the damper area of the car, which is really just the, the point where the suspension connects to the chassis. And that includes the spring and anything else in that area so that you can't connect those 
that damper volume to anything else electronically, hydraulically or anything, but it's open. So it includes the spring. Um, so, you know, but there are rules about what springs you can use. Um, but basically a, a damper or shock absorber is just a, a device that resists movement and it's proportional to velocity. So the speed of it. So spring resists movements depending on the displacement. So if you push a spring in half an inch, it's going to push back and you hold it there and it's still pushing back. A damper, if you push half an inch down, it doesn't resist anymore once you stop pushing it. But the faster you push it, the more it resists. So it's just the first derivative of displacement of the spring. So it's like the next step of sort of system control. Um, but you can also do uh, anything else in that space that you want. And I've had a lot of thoughts about that and I haven't come up with anything, <laughs> but the teams have gotten, because it's been open for so long, it's been open for over 10 years. The teams have done some really, you know, who knows what some of the teams have done, but they've had a lot of time to really build entire programs and, and production lines around this. Whereas at first I think it was really intended so teams could take their dampers from the old car and put them on the new one and they didn't want to have to regulate it. Mm -hmm. But now it's, and at first nobody really spent a ton of money because they thought at some point it's become going to become a spec damper. And then it, eventually when that didn't happen, you've seen a huge uh, development push. Um, so, you know, including inerters, which are like the next step from a damper, inerter resists movement proportional to acceleration. So it's just a different piece of the puzzle in terms of what you can do between the chassis and the, and the ground, essentially. Um, as far as the, our tune mass dampers, a thing in IndyCar, it's hard to, the def definitions of these are a little bit tricky because they're not standardized, but um, usually they come from like Formula One and it's very opaque and they don't, nobody really knows exactly what they do at first and they give them a name. But generally a mass damper is uh, a mass that's attached to the chassis. So it's not connected to the suspension and it just uh, moves. When the chassis moves, it moves with the chassis, but it's got something to tune it with like a damper or spring. And that's not allowed in IndyCar. So you can't have a mass damper in IndyCar the way I would define it. Um, but inerter is something that works in a sort of similar way that is allowed, but it's only allowed on the corners. Um, you can't have an inerter uh, or a damper in the third spring of the cars. So the cars are allowed to have a, a third spring or, or a bump rubber, but that's it. You can't have a damper or inerter in that space. And so, so it's a little tricky, like ideally you would really want to run an inerter on the third spring. It's much simpler and it just controls the body in a much more reliable way, but it's not allowed in IndyCar. So a lot of people are really experimenting with using inerters on these corners, which really maybe isn't the best place to put them, but it's an area that they can develop in, which are very few of. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting space. A lot of what's happening in there is, not necessarily known uh, by everyone, um, but you know, essentially everyone's working with springs, dampers, and inerters in that in that volume, and trying to do their best to make it work. Jr., I think you're a good person to ask about the competition element of it because, I guess, at least more recently, you've raced for some maybe some smaller teams where uh, I think this is another one of these things where people are like. Um, you know, how are IndyCar teams divided competition-wise? And as Charlie rightfully pointed out, you know, the big teams will have whole teams working on dampers. They've got damper engineers. They've got whole crews working on this stuff like year-round or at least for the chunk of the season. Whereas you've got some of the smaller teams who 
like their their race engineers or their performance engineers or whatever you want to call them are like working on the damper development themselves as well as being a race engineer so they're like not only do they not have a damper department they're like totally screwed on time and are doing all of this work themselves um you know running themselves into the ground alongside their kind of day job i guess you would put it so i guess you've got some experience of that and kind of seeing how that works on a kind of day-to-day basis in indycar yeah i mean i was just going to say you know every team will have somebody that their responsibility is to look after the dampers to dyno them to you know get you the rates that you want to build the dampers to do all that kind of stuff but you know i think to your point you kind of have to you know, climb the ladder up to the extremely well-resourced teams within the series, which there's becoming more and more of, um, or that, that kind of knowledge base is getting spread out a little bit more where, you know, there's truly a development track within the team that is specific to the dampers. And you've got somebody who that's, you know, sort of their wheelhouse to be working on that. To your point, the majority of the teams that I've raced for over my you know career in IndyCar, you know, the, the, the lead engineer, is kind of responsible more or less for decision-making when it comes to like what we're going to do with dampers and that, you know, I, in a lot of times that just sort of, for all the reasons that you outlined, not because those aren't, those are, you know, maybe in some situations, individuals that if you let them, if you gave them the time and the bandwidth to just work on dampers, it could become the thing that they're great at. And they'd get a lot more done probably in terms of figuring out what to do, but they just don't have that bandwidth to figure it out. So um, it's definitely one of the things that it's also for a lot of the reasons, I think Charlie did a great, great job of, you know, sort of laying the context in addition to just explaining it, laying the context for why it's difficult to isolate the damper and it's, you know, and the effect that it has on the performance of the car. Like there's, it's all of these kind of second order, third order, you know, control mechanisms on the way that the car works, the way that it moves, the way that it does different things. And so, you know, we know at a very basic level, what does, you know, making the compression or the rebound softer or stiffer on the front versus the rear, you know, on the ovals, you're tuning all four dampers separately, basically. So the right front versus the left front, you're doing totally different things with them. Like they're completely asymmetric a lot of times in terms of, you know, what you're doing on each corner. But thinking about it in the context of a road course, um, you know, he's he he brought up a great point, which is, you know, the third spring really is the thing that's controlling like the heave of the car, sort of the vertical movement basically of the car, but it's not really controlling it. It's just it's you're just sitting on this these set of springs that get you're getting deeper and deeper into the spring rate. So it's becoming stiffer and stiffer, basically. Um, you know, you can also change the progression of that rate with bump revers and and other things. Um, you know, you're, that's, you know, a, a, an indie car with that versus without it will for sure be faster just because you can control the ride height of the car. You keep the car lower to the ground and get the arrow to work on the car much better, but it also adds a lot of complexity because then you're having to kind of think almost independently about, all right, well, how is, how is that? changing as i'm braking and cornering when the whole car is both laterally and vertically loaded in these sort of different rates of the corner springs versus the third springs you know the heave springs and all this kind of stuff um it definitely i think ultimately the teams that really get all of this stuff right are the ones that have have you know roles that are defined but also people in those roles with a really zoomed out perspective 
on just like somebody needs to be responsible for thinking about how all these things at like a global level interplay with each other, basically. And so that's in addition to have somebody having, you know, people who are really hardcore and knowledgeable and focused on the dampers themselves on that like detailed piece. You kind of also need the people on the team or the personalities on the team, even if that is a lead engineer, to be able to kind of think about all of it together as well. So, um, you know, those those both play a big role, I think, in getting the most out of your damper program within the IndyCar paddock. For sure. I guess like somewhere like Ganassi, you've got someone like Jim Hamilton, who's more like a special projects guy. You can just go and enlist him to go and look at certain elements of the car. But I think we're also seeing... I feel like maybe we probably need to dig this into into this a little bit further, but I feel like we're seeing more like technical directors and kind of overarching people in the IndyCar series in various teams where maybe that's being thought about more global thinking about how the actual end product is created as opposed to just like we need two engineers and two mechanics on this car for this period of time or or whatever. I feel feel like that's it's not necessarily something new, but I feel like that is that has been something that IndyCar teams have identified as something that they need to do is be able to think a bit more globally about the whole package, which is a an interesting topic in itself. I want to sweep up some more here. We've got another kind of damper-themed question, um, I guess, from Michael Benny in Scotland. So thanks for listening, Michael. Uh, Michael's question is, with IndyCar teams limited in the areas they can develop, do you think by having this focus that they are more technologically advanced than Formula One in those areas, uh, for example, dampers? Or do you think F1 dampers will still be more advanced just from the amount of developed money and time they can spend? Uh, thanks for the podcast and excellent IndyCar coverage this year and looking forward to next season. Thanks for that, Michael. Um, I, I think this is interesting. It kind of feeds back into, I, I kind of, I don't know why, when I read this question just now, it kind of made me think about JR's uh, talking about the the IndyCar should be somewhere where things are developed and it's the history of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway that that's places where uh, things are developed. I think dampers are a great example of, if you force IndyCar teams to just kind of focus on one thing, this is what they're capable of doing, right? Because... I guess if you compare an IndyCar to Formula One, uh, the the immediate thing that you're immediately struck by, which you've identified, Michael, already, is the the resources. There's not the, you don't have the people in IndyCar, you don't have the money, um, or or even the time to to be able to go into the level of detail that the Formula One teams are, are able to go into. And I think it's it's a bit difficult. It's almost like comparing apples and oranges as to which which series has got the best dampers. I'm sure Formula One would be uh, more advanced, but I think. What, what the dampers in IndyCar show is that when you force some of the, the cool people in IndyCar to to focus on one element of the car, they can come up with some really cool stuff. And it's only one area, but it also impacts the, the whole performance of the cars we've discussed already. So it is a really interesting area of the car, I think. Um, I don't know if you guys have got any anything you want to jump in on on that question. But yeah, I think for, for me, the, I think the Formula 1 dampers would be significantly better, but I think it's a good example of when you kind of corner IndyCar teams, they're um, they're capable of producing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's just the pe- people, the series gets better in what they focus on, I think. And when, when in 2012, when we started supporting the Chevy teams with the new chassis, it was, you know, the first time that really you could run something like an inerter. And I looked into it at the time and I had some people in Formula One that used a similar type of, you know, ideas on their third springs. And so, you know, they weren't necessarily experts, but they understood what the current technology in Formula One was at the time. 
And their thought was, well, if you can't use it on the third, there's really no point, you know, like they don't see the point in using it on a corner damper only, and that could cause problems and it could be a little trickier to sort out. And obviously the teams have now found ways to make that work and give them performance. So I think it's just, uh, you know, more advanced. I'm not sure if, a, I'm, I don't know exactly what's in a modern Formula One damper, but I suspect because the rules are more open, they don't need to be as complicated in, in, a, in a way. Um, so that would be my thought that it's, I think there's definitely some things happening in IndyCar that Formula One engineers would be surprised by and interested with. Um, so, but, you know, obviously there's more money and, and resources in F1 to do whatever they want to do. Yeah. I think I would, I would only just add that. I, I think that's right. And that I think that you see that in IndyCar when, when engineers come from other places, whether it be Formula One or. I mean, I worked with Justin Taylor, who came over from, you know, being a factory Audi LMP1 engineer. He's he went back and won Le Mans this year with uh with Ferrari. So that was shout out to Justin for for doing that. That was awesome to see. But um when he came over to IndyCar, it was interesting just talking to him about, and we've talked about this briefly in the pod, so I won't go into it in detail, but I think this is true for, you know, basically those programs, you know, in the you know, teens or whatever, you know, 20. 2012, 2013, 2014, when it was Toyota, Audi, Porsche with, I mean, those were, you know, eight to nine figure development programs in the way that Formula One programs are, right? Um, to go try to win them all that, you know, the other thing that just becomes, becomes a factor is they sort of, in a way, don't need to deeply understand every part of the car at the most in-depth level or necessarily the the like most high resolution like refined ways in which all of those parts of the car interact with each other because if they just get the most out of like the next arrow update then they're getting the then that's that's where the performance is going to come from and so they don't spend their weekends screwing around with roll bars and spring changes and all this kind of stuff unless it's really obvious that they're you know not extracting some performance out of other things that they should be, but it's almost then just to do that, right? Like it's just, uh, and you see this in Formula One, you hear about it, you know, okay, Red Bull introduced an update. They're not getting the performance they think they're getting in FP1. So then they go screw around with some spring changes and dampers and whatever to like see if they can unlock that pace because it's affecting the ride height of the car in a way that they weren't expecting it to. So they have to make some mechanical changes. Um, that's slightly oversimplifying it, but you know, in the IndyCar series, yeah, you're just zoomed all the way in on these handful of things. And that as engineers, you know, Charlie, you can speak to this, but you really have to understand how all these little gritty details were, you know, affect and interplay with the other little adjustments that you can make, because that's all you can play with. And so, and that the field is so tight that, getting a couple of those little things that for an F1, you know, I mean, all you have to do really is just look at the spread of the field in F1 compared to IndyCar and just sit there and go, well, yeah, something that would be worth a 10th basically just doesn't matter. Like a 10th is almost inconsequential in Formula One qualifying um, a lot of the time. So, um, or, or certainly it's, it's like an order of magnitude less consequential than it is in IndyCar in terms of where you stack up in the field. So, I think for all of those reasons, it's just different. 
basically to Charlie's point, it's not necessarily that the dampers are like more advanced or something. Cause they, there's kind of a limit to what they can be in an Indy car to his earlier discussion about it. But um, in terms of the knowledge base around that damper, as it is extraordinarily high in the Indy car series. And I would, and I would argue probably in that context more so than in F1. Vic Toronox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. But another question in from Phoebe in New Zealand, who is obviously spoiled for IndyCar drivers. So congrats on that, Phoebe. I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure. I'm guessing you're a Scott Dixon fan, but could be uh, could be uh, supporting somebody else as well. We won't uh, pigeonhole you to New Zealand. The question is, I'm not super clued into the more development orientated side of things in IndyCar yet. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. Are there any plans for future for, for other parts of the cars to be independently developed outside of just the dampers? It gets a bit odd or it gets a bit old seeing people refer to IndyCar as a spec series. I wonder if having more parts of the cars open to interpretation might avoid people seeing it that way. So I think Phoebe, it's, a, it's really interesting. I think I'm kind of happy with just like one key area being open development because it keeps the cost down. But you can also go in a different direction and encourage uh, a bit more development, as I'm sure um, JR would like to see in certain areas anyway. Let me ask you guys, if there was one thing you could open up as well as dampers in IndyCar, what would it be and why? That's putting you on the spot a little bit, sorry. (laughs) Well, I'll jump in first and basically just say that I think it's almost kind of a trick question because this is correlated directly to cost for teams. And so if you you open more, it's kind of not, it's, it's almost not, like on the table, I feel like for IndyCar uh, to just say, okay, we're just going to open up something else because it just adds adds more cost. I think from my perspective, in order to, but there are some ways for IndyCar from a regulatory perspective to think about the way that they regulate things differently. That is yeah. like right now, basically every, the way that IndyCar regulates everything is the same as Formula One for for all intents and purpose, same kind of as NASCAR, which is, we are going to establish the way that everything should, in essence, look um, by its size and shape within a given area in a static environment. So just sitting here that has nothing to do with how it performs. There's nothing to do with we're not regulating or measuring how it performs or whatever. We're just saying within this box to Charlie's, to Charlie's point, even about the damper, it's basically here's this area of the car between the chassis bolts and you know the suspension bolts you can put whatever you want there basically <laughs> um you know so it doesn't even have to be a traditional damper and spring it could be whatever um turns out that sort of a traditional damper and spring is actually the right solution for that but um you know when they when they opened up the arrow kits charlie was you know, this is probably when we got introduced to each other or when you were with Pratt Miller and, and, and Chevrolet, um, you know, doing aero kit development or even, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I maybe just, just, just ahead of that. Um, 
but that you know that ended up turning into a thing that the, ma- the manufacturers took on a fair load of you know almost almost all I guess of the financial load of developing the man- the the arrow kits. But you know you you have to basically manage not only the cost going up by being able to develop, um, but the performance of the cars then changing and then parity among whoever the different, however many different parties are allowed to do them differently. So in that sense, it was basically just Chevy and Honda. The teams weren't allowed to play with the arrow on their own. Um, but you've got this, these fundamental factors in terms of making things open or more closed, which are cost parity and overall performance. And I say overall performance, like when they introduced the arrow kits, the cars just immediately went faster everywhere. Um, you know, to the point that it was like, oh shit, like maybe, maybe they need to slow down, um, <laughs> you know, in certain, in certain aspects of their performance. And so I would, I would, I guess, answer this in a slightly different way, which is I just, I want to see IndyCar solve for that by being more creative in terms of the way that things are regulated by not adopting BOP as it like exists today, but looking at that as a framework for saying, what are some ways that we can make a better BOP that we we muddle in meddle in less, basically, and is and is a little bit more um, naturally or or self regulating in terms of what the constraints are, how we're looking at the constraints. I mean, it's possible to have, you know, drive shaft, you know, torque sensing drive shafts. It's possible to have all kinds of things that actually that you could actually basically, in my mind, just cap the dynamic constraints of what a car is actually doing on track as opposed to the static constraints of what it looks like and then hoping that that somehow manages to cap the dynamic constraints in a way that keeps cost down and performance down and and parity in check so i think that in essence with more flexible regulation so with the caveat that this requires a different regulatory structure to do this um you know i would the engines for me are the number one thing that I would like to see powertrains be able to become more open to interpretation in terms of what, what IndyCar does, because I think a, that is super interesting to the fan base. When you hear different sounds and see different ways of doing things from the manufacturers, it also has, you know, a a carry on effect of, in my mind, being the single most significant thing that could enable more manufacturers to come to the IndyCar series. So that's that to me is is pretty much the thing. Because the other part of that, when it comes to cost, and I'll just say this now, which is like, you know, I've I've heard from a current IndyCar engine manufacturer that like they're spending millions of dollars a year to develop like the head of a piston right now. You know, like a a totally insignificant minute part that has zero effect. What like you, you know, as a consumer, you are, that is, you're so far removed from seeing that kind of spend and development happening. Um, You know, with, within, we'll just say like IMSA's BOP regs, that money is not being spent on those kinds of things because there's just no upside to it. Basically like the way that things are regulated you could do that. A, it's not worth you spending your five million bucks on that, on that like insignificant of a thing, uh, because there's a lot more that you can affect. Um, but also the way that performance is kind of capped at a point, continuous 
you know, work on the little tiny things as it, as it's the only thing that's being done in IndyCar makes it like exponentially expensive as you do development. There's just totally different incentives for like your, your spend and, and how you look at all of those things. So, so that to me would be the thing that I'd really like to see change. Charlie, do you have any, any instinct there as uh, to what you might change? Well, I guess the question is, are there any plans for the future to have open development? And I don't, unfortunately, I don't think there, there are, but um, as far as uh, the history of that and what I'd like to see, I think the last time I remember that being on the table is uh, 2011 or 2010 when they had the iconic committee and they got uh, several people together. I remember uh, Jill DeFerrin was on it. There were quite a few people and they said, like, let's just imagine what IndyCar should be like. And they came up with, um, you know, this, that's, that was the impetus for the new chassis, the new engine rules. And what they said was, look, the fans like to see development, but development's expensive. So what we should do is focus development areas only on what the fans can see. And that was the idea behind the arrow kits. And I think it was a really good conceptual idea to allow development in a way that the fans can see and that people can report on and, and you don't have to, you know, dig into the industry to understand. Um, unfortunately that didn't go very well. Um, there was a huge discrepancy in performance between the two manufacturers and the teams. And because they were trying to keep costs down, they weren't allowing updates. So it's like after race one, it's like, Oh, Honda's going to not win a race this year. Maybe, you know, not have a pole position. The Honda teams are like, we can't, we won't keep our sponsors. We won't keep our, you know, so it was a huge kind of meltdown. Um, and, and I understand that perspective, but I think that, uh, you know, somehow we, the unfortunate thing about dampers being open is there's something that's open for development, which is cool. I think there should be something open, but it's completely invisible and it wasn't intentional either. It wasn't like they sat down and said, let's have dampers be the thing. It was just sort of accidental <laughs> where somewhere along the line, somebody said, Oh, you know what, with this new chassis, what dampers are we going to run? And they said, well, let's just make it so the old car dampers can fit and everyone can bolt their old dampers on. Oh, well, what about regulations? Well, just make it whatever open because what are they going to do? You know, and it became <laughs> this, this massive million dollar industry that the fans have no insight into whatsoever. So that's disappointing that the area development that came about was not intentional and not, uh, you know, something that, was understood to be a good idea. It just sort of happened. I think that, uh, you know, having development that fans can see is ideal. Aerodynamics are a very expensive thing to develop, but at the same time, they've got so many aerodynamic pieces on the car now that you have to do a lot of understanding of those pieces, even to, to be competitive. So there is still a lot of money being spent on aerodynamics because they're allowing all this adjustability, which I think is great. Um, but I think there's also this huge sort of PTSD from the arrow kits that if you bring it up, people will be like, we're never going to do that again. That was a horrible <laughs> idea. Um, so I'd like to see something on the outside of the car be development. And that's going to be by, uh, you know, definition aerodynamic related. Um, and, but also engines, you know, engines that sound different engines that look different are good, but both those are really difficult because of the impact they have, especially at the 500. And so you don't want to be, create a development war, but I would I would be happy if they were doing something besides dampers in the development world, for sure. I just don't know if there's any plans for that. I'm not aware of any. 
just to tack onto that super quick about the arrow side of it, because, you know, I think you, you bring up a good point, which is that, you know, there's a lot of, there is a lot of PTSD about, about the arrow kits. Um, but I think that, you know, in some ways that's making it so we're not really like extracting the right insights from what that was like. And the fact that it did, it did actually, whether we liked them, whether you liked the way they looked, whether you liked the way that the cars looked, whether we particularly liked the fact that we introduced them and then you took them away. Well, you know, there's like a lot of things to kind of unpack about the arrow kits, but that leave people feeling different ways about that, that particular way that, you know, it happened. But the reality of it is like, it did actually, it introduced a lot of interesting things into the fold for teams, for manufacturers. It was something that manufacturers were for doing. Um, for a lot of the reasons that Charlie mentioned, it's something that's obvious that enables them to differentiate the way that they're doing, you know, what they're doing to the other manufacturers. Um, it is something that's visible for the fans. So the fans can more easily identify one car versus another, um, you know, and, and that I think that in, in talking to some of the, some of the OEMs, what, what I hear from them now is look, we understand what that all was all about. We were the ones that actually did it. We we still want to be able to create visual identity of our vehicles compared to the others. That's one of the things that you that you very clearly do get with sports cars that you don't get with open wheel or with with IndyCar at least. And that and in addition, there's not a lot of like it's less obvious how you create brand identity in an open wheel car than you do with something that's like, you know, basically, you know, looks like a regular car, even the prototypes. Um, you know, I mean the, for the OEMs, I, I know this just unquestionably that the ability with an IMSA prototype to design your own headlights and taillights is, this sounds so trivial, but it's an enormous deal to them that they get to design their headlights so that when the car is on at night and you see the headlight on, that it looks exactly like a Porsche Taycan or whatever, um, or a Cadillac. CTSV or, or or whatever the street car is, that there are these identifying factors to the car that in that sense have nothing to do with performance, that they are strictly just visual identity. And so I think, and that I know that they've brought some of these things to IndyCar as kind of like, hey, can we do something like this that not necessarily suggesting that we add headlights, although I'm a hundred percent for night races, um, like let's do, let's do a 24 hour IndyCar race at Sebring. But, um, <laughs> but that the idea of thinking about it in along those lines, like, no, we we're not asking just for arrow kits all over again. We're asking to, again, develop a framework of regulations that enables us to take a part of the car that is performance-based any part of the car in IndyCar, any for any part of bodywork is performance-based, like the function just, you know, follows the form and vice versa from that perspective um, to be able to shape it in a way or whatever that allows us to expose the Chevy brand identity, the Honda brand identity, the, the X OEM brand identity, and have that be regulated in such a way in the same way that it is in other places that it's just that it's not adding this whole other domain of performance development, you know, that is, okay, we know that there are some performance constraints that we have to operate within and that that's going to be, that's not just going to be, it has to fit within this box and look like X, Y, or Z. That's going to be, when the car actually goes out on track, this this is what's allowable in terms of the performance benefit that we get from tweaking in this area. And once we, once we reach that 
cap, then we're not allowed to mess with it anymore in terms of its design. The teams then would then do all the same things that they're currently doing, right? Which is finding those little ways in the wind tunnel with a bunch of spec parts to get it a little bit better. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess I bring that up just to say like, I think some of these things, even though you could look at like the arrow kit thing is kind of a failure in terms of finding the right balance of cost and, you know, all of this stuff, it's possible to do these things in a way that, you know, are, that are exciting both to OEMs and for fans going forward. Speaking of exciting, I like this question a lot. It's from Stuart Coulter on Twitter. Charlie, I'm going to fire this your, di- your direction. Which circuit on the current IndyCar calendar requires the most amount of compromise from a setup point of view? And in brackets, or to put it another way, the most difficult to find the ideal setup. Now, I'm guessing the most difficult to find the ideal setup is probably Indy based on the fact of all the aero kind of options you've got to work through and the amount of testing that you've got there. Um, I guess you can confirm or deny that, Charlie, and then say, let, let's have another event other than the 500, which would be the most difficult from a, a compromise setup point of view as well. Yeah, I think um, that it's. I think the question was kind of rephrased by um, the person that asked it, but I think it's. A, I take those two questions differently. I think like the most amount of compromise, um, you know, is the circuit with the most um, diverse sort of features. So yeah. slow speed corners, like you think IndyCar doesn't race there, like Nurburgring or something. That's the biggest compromise because you you can't really fine tune the car for any particular corner. You're just, you've got to make it work a little bit everywhere. And so, uh, and, and that's different than finding the ideal setup, I think, because uh, like you said, it's um, the ideal setup to me are tracks that have very specific criteria in Indy or, or almost any oval is really that way where everyone's trying to work in this tiny window and you're, and even things like weather are huge, make a huge difference in, in getting it right. Whereas on a road course with, a diverse amount of corners like road America or thermal is going to be one too, um, that has a lot of different types of corners. Um, that's, those are the most compromised circuits. And that doesn't mean they're easy. And a lot of times you're trying to figure out like, should we set up the car for high speed or low speed, or do we want to get out of the slow speed corners fast? Like Laguna is a good example where you've got like a really slow speed corner and a really important straightaway. And then everything else is really fairly fast. And you've got the elevation change and things like that. So it's a tricky um, to decide what you want to do, but there, I feel like there's more, there's not necessarily an ideal setup. There's multiple ways you can have a competitive car at a track like that. So you just kind of have to decide a direction that you want to go. And if you're struggling, you can look at timing data and see whether people are doing and say, okay, well, it's like a high speed car is really going to be the most competitive and you can work in that direction. So it's straightforward. It doesn't mean it's easy, but um, I mean, Indy's straightforward as well. You're just turning one corner left, but but there's so many um, variables and it's, it's such a small window of operation that your every little tiny thing matters. And, and you've also got, when you throw asymmetry into the mix, you've got so many potential options and the arrow options they have now are, are crazy as well. So it's, it's um, that's, I wouldn't say Indy's necessarily harder than other ovals, but it's uh, you have a lot of, everyone has a lot of time there to really work at it. Whereas like Texas last year, I was really, proud of that we were able to be competitive there, but you really just had one shot at it. And if you had two weeks to work on it, maybe the setup that everyone had would have probably been garbage by the end of that, <laughs> by the time the race rolled around. So Indy gives you this opportunity to kind of just go around in circles and and uh, chase the weather and everything. And, and everyone's putting a lot of effort into it. It's the most amount of cars. So 
Um, that's the hardest place for me to, to get the perfect setup because it's so uh, all those factors, but, um, but then road courses are a compromise. That's a completely different challenge too. And then as uh, JR and I learned after uh, Joseph Newgarden's Indy 500, when you spend the whole week of practice getting to a point where you're really happy with the car and then you throw it all out the window and do something totally different yeah. just for the sake of <laughs> for the sake of trying to improve things so that's always fun you can go back and listen to that episode and hear that from a driver's perspective in a little bit more detail i'm going to group these kind of last few questions here into one basically because we've had uh at jfray 032 jonathan Frey. And we've also had Michael from Halifax in Canada. Michael, if you're the guy who was uh, um, who came over and said hello in Toronto this year, hello to you. Thanks for for messaging in. If you're not, then I'm sorry for mistaking you for another Michael from Canada. And we've also had, I feel like we've had another uh, chassis related question as well. Um, anyway, we'll wrap them all together. Basically, um, Jonathan had picked out that Pato uh, awarded recently, uh, given an interview, I think maybe to motorsport.com about the the series needing a new chassis. Uh, Michael asked quite a few different questions in in his question uh, about a new chassis. Let me um, let me start with you, Charlie, and I'll, I'll come to you first. But uh, I guess we've got to a point now where the chassis is kind of in a in a weird place where it's kind of. Uh, hated on a little bit because it's so old and people think we need a new one but also is the kind of one of the core reasons why the field or the championship is so competitive and has given us this kind of great on-track product so it's kind of weird scenario where it's kind of it should be loved it's kind of hated a little bit and there's kind of some kind of middle ground there somewhere um uh, I guess the question is chassis for chassis sake like do you just introduce a new one for the sake of it but um if if we're kind of drawing up a new set of regulations for IndyCar now what are some of the things that you would kind of like to see I know you were around when the DW12 was kind of coming in and you've seen it kind of develop from this I mean it's not it's not the same as it was in 2012 now right it's very different in terms of a package that we actually see on the track but what are some of what are some of the things maybe you've learned from this set of regulations and maybe something you would do differently or some things you would like to see from a new chassis in, in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some, there's some boring sort of standard ways, I think, and, and probably the way it will happen is, uh, you know, first off um, safety is the biggest concern. So there's been a lot of safety upgrades to the current chassis and they can integrate all those into a better design. I think there's needs to be more adjustability around, the new car because right now the old car was built around sort of a specification that's very different so a lot of the teams are kind of at the limit of some roll centers and things like that so i'm sure they would they would build more adjustability which might make the uh, teams have a little bit bigger window to play in and see some some more um, diversity in setups and maybe some teams that can get their head around that earlier if you 2012 was the last year and ready won a championship and that was really because they got on top of the new car faster than others. So I think having more adjustability and a, and a new package does shake it up a little bit, and that would be good for the series. Um, so that would be what you definitely do. Um, the current chassis is pretty amazing. It's made it this long and it still kind of works, like you said. So, but it's, I think it's hard to sell a car that's this old and something when you're trying to talk about being cutting edge. I, I think the, uh, you know, the last two times you had new manufacturers come in was when there was a new chassis, Chevy came in when there was a new chassis and new engine rules and Honda and Toyota came in when there was a new chassis and new engine rules. So that's what brings the manufacturers in. I don't think you can go to a boardroom and say, yeah, I've got this car and it's, it's, you know, it, it's, 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 
it's not old, it's new because we've done all these things, but <laughs> you know, it still, it still looks like the same car in, in a way, you know, it's hard to, it's just hard, hard sell, even if it's true that this car is fine, it's a hard sell. And I think I've seen some, I thought I saw IndyCar say something about there's no chassis from 2012 anymore. They're all updated. Well, that's not true. There's 2012 chassis that ran at Indy this year. Callum was in one of them. So there's old chassis out there. And that's a little bit of a safety risk, I think, to me. I mean, even though the cars get checked and everything, not saying they put anybody in an unsafe situation, but it's just at some point, if the car wasn't designed to last this long, it's not good for it to last this long. And if you're going to build a bunch of new chassis, they could be different and better. Um, but you know, beyond that standard way of doing things like JR, I'm sure will say like, it, it would be great if there's more consideration than just making the best version of the current car. If you're going to make a new car as well, you know, you could, it does open the possibilities to do a lot more interesting things. And from the outside, it seems like IndyCar is kind of going to manufacturers and saying, Hey, do you want to come to IndyCar? And we'll do whatever you think you want to do it. You know, whatever you say, we'll, we'll make a formula for that. But that's not, you know, that's not the most attractive way to, to bring people in. It's better, even though it's more risky, to come up with a great, exciting package and then sell it rather than say, uh, well, you should come here because we'll do whatever you want. It's not as enticing. And, and, um, but it's also riskier. And there's been circumstances in the past where manufacturers have announced new rule sets and then they flopped. So, you know, um, it does happen. But, um, yeah, I think for me... Uh, a new chassis would be great if it, if it did a little bit of reinventing the series. I don't know if I'm as extreme as JR wants. I'm, I'm open. I'm up for it. If whatever he <laughs> says and they want to do it, I'm up for it, but I don't think it has to be that big of a jump necessarily, but you hope it's just not, okay, here's a new chassis, just like the old one, but a little bit better. Then it becomes maybe a wasted opportunity, especially if it's going to last another 12 years or whatever. Go on then, Joe. Oh, where are you? I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to appoint Charlie yeah. president. That. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, he was kind I'll, of agreeing to appoint you president. So I can't, it's like a yeah. joint presidency going on here. Like, how's this yeah, going to work? Okay with that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think basically, you know, my general point of view is a little more zoomed out on this. I agree with everything that Charlie said in terms of, you know, you have to prioritize certain things and there's a lot of great ways to do those things. And I also agree that at some point, I mean, at some point you have, to, and this is this is just true. I think broadly with IndyCar, the car, the engine package, the whatever is like you just can't expect people to stay interested in the same thing over and over and over again, basically doing all the same stuff with it. Like, I think there's an element to that that I think that's fundamentally kind of a flawed perspective to have on on going racing to a degree that it's just like, I think that's part of why the manufacturers are a little bit like, what the hell are we doing right now? Because it's sort of like, you know, I, the current, I think I, I it wouldn't shock me to find out the, the perspective of current OEMs that are in the series are kind of like, we're just, it, we don't, it doesn't even do us any good to win another Indy 500 at this point. We've won so many of them. We've split them or whatever over the last 10 years with this formula. Like we don't really have anything to go yell from the rooftops about anymore we're just trying to not lose them because we get like immense internal criticism if we end up losing a championship or an indy 500 like that's not the mentality that you want the people who are involved in your series to have um so i think something new is a requirement to do a lot of these things um you know to just freshen up what's going on i know that's hard to 
um, quantify in terms of what impact that has. But it's some in in some sense, you have to just buy into the idea that that's going to have an impact in in terms of at least changing the conversation that you're having with OEMs, the fan base, your teams, you know, whatever. It, it, it's you're talking about something new, if nothing else. And I think Charlie pointed out, you know, exceptionally that it, it's it's a weird sales process to say, all right, we're going to develop this whole, even if we, I mean, at the moment, it's not, we're going to develop this great new engine. It's just, we're going to enter a series that has an existing engine and we're going to do the same thing that they're currently doing. Um, I think that's made even more difficult by saying, oh, and we're still using the car that they've been using, you know, so there's no, there's no catalyst for like a new hype cycle for anything kind of, if, if we're, if we're not changing the car in addition to anything else. Um, and I, and so I'll, I'll say that just, and kind of get off the soapbox with it to then lead into like, what is the opportunity here? Well, the opportunity here is to really look at the product design of IndyCar and, and look for the ways that it can be more interesting, that it can be more ambitious, that it can be more evocative, um, you know, I've said this a number of times, but like, and and I and I know that there are people that matter that agree with this. That at this point, like, whether we're talking about chassis or engine or whatever, like, you could you could basically you could build an engine. Like, if you were if we were just going to say you're building a spec motor, like Chevy, Honda, Toyota, Hyundai, Mercedes, Ferrari, whoever, you're going to be the sole the, the the single engine supplier for IndyCar. We're not going to restrict you by displacement or or turbocharging or whatever so use whatever size anything you want for any of those brands like it costs more or less the same to develop a race motor that makes 800 horsepower as it does to develop a race motor that makes 1200 horsepower like so we're we're not really like restricted you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago or something that might have been the case today it's just not like we can do whatever we want the same is true for the chassis which is we can build a car that could go, you could build a car easily that would go 245 at Indy and run a, go 15 seconds a lap faster at some of the road court at road America or whatever, basically just as cost effectively as you could build a car that build another car that goes the same speed as the car goes now. Like it's sort of just a matter of what, what criteria are we designing this around? And, and I feel like at the moment, IndyCar lacks a little bit of that criteria. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve with the way that, the, like, why is the car whatever it is? Um, why are the engine regs whatever they are beside, for the sake of IndyCar and IndyCar's product, not just to Charlie's point to say, well, what do you guys want to do? And so I think that the opportunity here is to define that specifically for what can make IndyCar better and different than Formula One in particular. Like we have to view F1 as our primary competitor for everything. Um, you know, at this point, it, I, th I think the last few years of the drive to survive, you know, era here have sort of shown that no, the, you know, Formula One getting this huge bump in interest has not floated all the boats. Like, it's just turned, it's just made Formula One even bigger. And now they're encroaching on our territory. Um, you know, what are the things that IndyCar can do, you know, distinctly differently than Formula One? And can we lean into those things with the chassis? So, you know, my perspective on that is, is as I've said here before, like 
you know, take a much more significant swing at reducing downforce, maybe accounting for some of that with additional mechanical grip, let the car design the car to be something that can move around freely with the driver putting the thing on the edge, you know, build a car in essence, that's the greatest racing driver's car that's ever existed, that every race car driver on the planet wants to get in this thing because it's just so badass to drive. Um, you're going to end up with something that puts on a show in a completely different way than anything else at the top tier of motorsports right now. Cause everything else, at the top tier of motorsports has, uh, you know, it's, it's glazed over in terms of being able to see what the driver is actually doing. And fundamentally that is the thing that, that matters that people connect with when you watch Senna onboard videos, it's not because he, not because he like won a sprint finish by a 10th of a second at the line. It's because he's just out there on his own qualifying and you're sucked in so there's a way for indycar to lean into that in an, in a fashion that i think also checks boxes for the other things that we already associate with indycar being great at producing great racing producing close racing all of those things these things are not mutually exclusive in my mind if anything they go together better you'll have more passing naturally with a car that just has even more or less downforce than it currently has. And then you make up for that in terms of performance with power and tire size and these other things that just enable more of that differentiation to occur. So I, I do think that I'm probably I'm probably on the side of this, which is it's just time for a new chassis anyway. Um, but that I, I also think that a, a real reason to do it is because there's an opportunity here to redefine IndyCar's product for the for the near future, we'll say, um, you know, in, in a way that makes it fundamentally more evocative um, to the fan. And that I think we just kind of ignore that perspective too much. Like ultimately the fan, if if we just get more people paying attention to the IndyCar, that solves all of the other problems, right? Like that that answers all the questions that manufacturers need answered. That you know, solves for promoter issues that we've got that solves for all of these other things. It's not the other way around. Like you don't, you don't solve for that by like doing it backwards. And so, you know, ultimately the product is the thing that fans connect with and, and are exposed to. And I think we, we just need to treat it as such like that simply. Um, and that the car is core to that. I think, I think people, honestly, I'll, I'll, I'll just finish with this, which is, you know, at the risk of being contentious, which is that I think IndyCar fans and motorsport fans are have grown weary of these obvious and fundamental things like the car itself being sort of ignored as a core component to what makes the product of IndyCar interesting. And so, like, we need to get with the program here to figure some of these things out. I think people all over the world have just stopped what they're doing and Ross their fist into the air and have decided that they're <laughs> going to change the world today after listening to that jr charlie it's been an absolute dream having you on the show i think we'll wrap it up there we've had plenty of questions uh if you've got more questions you can email us podcasts at the hyphen race.com jr and i will do our best to answer them and even if you've got something for charlie i'm sure we can send it to him and he won't mind charlie why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've got in store uh coming up what you're kind of up to over the the next few months in terms of your racing uh, stuff and what you'll be doing next year because it's pretty exciting yeah um, I'm, I'm working with uh, i'm going to be race engineering a car in imsa gtd a, a corvette one of the new corvettes 
the 13 car for AWA. So it's a, it's a team that ran LMP3 last year. Uh, GTD will be a, a step up for them. And so the team's growing and I uh, still have some connection to the Pratt Miller guys who I've worked with for a long time. So that's a good combination. And um, I'm looking forward to the challenge. We're going to test them pretty soon. And an IndyCar side, hopefully I'll um, I'll be able to do the 500 again. I have a dispensation from AWA to do the 500. Um, so hopefully we can make something happen because it's always, um, even with an old car, it's still pretty cool race. So. <laughs> <laughs> you even got like uh, 20 cars in your class at Daytona. So it's uh, pretty like it's, even though it's, you know, people might turn their nose up at GTD, but it's like a race within itself at, uh, at least at Daytona. Yeah, I mean, it's is really exploding and, and, GTD is the biggest class in IMSA, so it's um, it's going to be the most challenging. I think it's it's obviously it's it requires AM drivers, which you know it's not everyone's cup of tea. But uh, there's a lot of pro drivers, a lot of pro te- factory teams, essentially running a GTD car. And at the end of the race, it's all factory drivers pretty much fighting each other. So um, we've got a couple of factory drivers in the car at Daytona, um, and it's going to be it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, sometimes in sports cars a podium is like mid pack, you know? And so it's, it's not super exciting to get on the podium, but if we can get on the podium in GTD at, at Daytona, that would be a huge accomplishment. So I think it's going to be a good challenge. And, um, you know, it was really fun doing part of the IndyCar season last year and, um, you know, but this is, uh, this is going to be a new thing and pretty looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, you've done a few things in your time, so uh, I'm hoping this one's going to be just as enjoyable as some of the previous ones. Thanks so much again for for joining us. I hope we'll be able to have you back on in in That's 2024 fun. to do some more of this uh, this kind of thing, breaking down some of these tech stories. JR, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you thought of the podcast. As I said earlier, you can email us. You can get in touch via social media with JR and I and Charlie as well if you want to tell him what you thought of his second uh, The Race IndyCar podcast appearance. And have a happy holidays. And we'll be back sometime in 2024. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.